Let's open our Bibles. Let's open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, this morning. It's a delight to open the Word of God and to hear from Him as He speaks to our hearts through the Bible and through preaching the Word of God that Jesus models even in our text before us. I'm excited to preach on Jesus and Him preaching good news to us, what we need to hear these days. I did fail to mention uh, one thing that I want to continue to highlight that's going on concurrent to our services. We have introduced fellowship groups, which are over an hour long. They're basically um, concomitant or, or at the same time as the services. And so there's time for serving. There's time for singing. There's time for fellowship. There's time for drinking God's blessed coffee and, um, and just enjoying fellowship together and then hearing God's word. This graphic looks like a college schedule. Please don't be turned away by it. Just look at it, think about it for a little bit and think about where you might participate in fellowship group because one of the key things I believe the Lord is doing in our midst by bringing us back together is answering the need for fellowship. I mean, we, we need body lifetime. We need to connect even in song and heart and seeing each other. And I appreciate so much just to be with you. I feel like we're in a, a living room together and uh, we're just connecting and uh, enjoying the word of God. And it's so essential to my heart and I'm sure yours as well. So we just are trying to plug everybody in with each other as much as possible these days. We're looking at Chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 12 to 17 this morning. And this text in particular is highlighting the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where he began in particular. And one phrase that's captured in verse 15 tells us where he was when he began his ministry. Now, this is the ministry of preaching, the ministry of healing, the ministry of Helping um, people um, recover, to be healed, to see, to hear, to come back from death, to have demons cast out. This is Jesus' kingdom ministry, and it began where? It began, look at verse 15, in a place called the Galilee of the Gentiles. The Galilee of the Gentiles. Everything in Jesus' ministry and first mission began in Galilee. We know he was baptized in the Jordan. We know that he was tempted in the wilderness, but then he goes to Galilee. Galilee is where he's going to take up his mission and his ministry. And uh, if you ever moved to a place like Alaska per se, let's just say, how many people moved from somewhere else to come here to Alaska? Let's see. All right. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a pretty healthy balance. And how many, how many are from here originally? Yeah. See, see. All right. Yeah. All right. Homegrown. I get it. I get it. And I love it. And I love the admixture of that. But if you ever had to move and, and start your life again, you know that that's a significant step to take. It's especially in ministry. I feel like indelible impressions are made when you show up to a place that you never forget. And this, this close of Matthew's gospel chapter four has three little sections that really speak to beginnings in ministry. 
We're going to learn about where Jesus went to, verses 12 through 17, but verses 18 to 22 speak of key significant relationships that were born out of his time there, where he's selecting apostles to surround him, his intimate three and and the 12. Look at that in verse 18. Uh, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, And then later in the text, verse 21, you have two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Just the idea of Jesus calling pairs, calling brothers who are blood brothers, but Jesus is creating this family around him, this connection around him that's a life connection that leads to eternal life, right, in their lives. And the excitement in that is unforgettable. And then In the last section of chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, these are early ministry victories. These are early ministry blessings of God on what Jesus was doing, where he's healing and preaching and seeing the power of God in early ministry life. It's exciting. It's exciting times. And all of this is happening in the Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, where God places you often defines you. It defines your mission, your ministry. It defines where you live, who you move next to, who's around you. It it describes the kind of work that you're going to do, both vocationally and in other ways with people dynamically. It's meaningful. And so to understand where Jesus landed is important. To understand where God placed Jesus is important. Jesus is God, but the Holy Spirit was moving him to Galilee. Remember, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. So if on a Bible map, we're talking about the northern region in Palestine that's right next to the Sea of Galilee. Some people call it the Lake of Galilee, but Galilee is a large body of water. I've never been there. I've watched, looked at pictures on on Google and things like that, but it looks like a pretty broad expanse of water. It's like a, it's like a sea. It, it's It's where you would maybe compare it to what the Prince William Sound would look like to you. It's a large body of water. And then, and so Galilee is, is butting up next to that. And so Galilee would be on, on the east side of Galilee. And then on the west is the Mediterranean Sea, which is like open ocean, right? And so that's a unique place. It's very commercialized. It's a place where you have fishermen, a lot of fishing, and you have, um, you have, it's very agriculturally fertile, and so you have a lot of growth and commerce there. And as it turns out, it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles because it's a melting pot. So imagine this. I know it would be hard to describe a small little area, and it's 15 miles by 20 miles, 15 north to south, 20 east to west, I believe. 15,000 people nestled together in kind of a tight spot, a lot of people fishing, and a lot of people from other places as a melting pot. Does that sound like any, anywhere familiar to you? I mean, I know we're 300,000 up here, but it's interesting. It's interesting to make the parallels and to see the very explicit design of God placing Jesus right there at that time to begin everything. It's as if God was saying, the Gentiles, the Gentiles get first glimpse of the Messiah in action. Yes, he was born in a manger, and he was witnessed by shepherds. You have, but you have Gentiles, you have magi, Zoroastrian, um, you know, magicians who are also designed to, to, 
to king make or to establish that there is a king here and give kingly gifts. They were from modern day Iraq. They're like from Babylonian culture invading the Jewish culture. And though the shepherds who were locals were able to exalt Christ, you have Gentiles early exalting Christ. You have the, the centurion that's going to be explained in his faith and how, how much faith he had in Matthew chapter 8. And he is a Gentile as well. And then you have the end of the story, which is Matthew 28, eight, or at Matthew 28, 19. Go out into all the world and make disciples, disciples of the nations. And so even though this is a Jewish book, this is a gospel to the Jews, uh, crowning and coronating Jesus as king of the Jews, there's always the world mission in mind. We were always part of the plan. Even the, the lineage of Matthew chapter 1, uh, I think it's within verse, verses 1, yeah, the first verse of Matthew, and then in the second verse, Abraham is mentioned, which he's the father of the nations. He's the father of faith, and the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, which says, in you, in your faith, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a global mission book and a global moment where Jesus, though he's in a, an obscure place, He's in a place that's very deliberate and was predicted by Isaiah eight centuries before. It's incredible to think about what God is up to in Jesus' life and what he was up to in our lives where he has placed us and try to make that comparison. Let me just read our text and dive in a bit. Look at verse 12. It says, now when he heard, this is Jesus, heard, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, I want to just take up this idea that Jesus was there specifically in a unique, unique place taking up a mission here. He was raised in Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, more obscure in Nazareth, right? And then he goes down south for a time and he's baptized by in the Jordan, out in the wilderness. But then he's returning. He, and then it says in John's gospel, chapter three, that before he returned up north, he actually had a baptism ministry um, down in the lower part of the Jordan River, and John the Baptist was in a upper northern region near the Dead Sea, and he was baptizing up there. So they were at two opposite ends of the Jordan River, preaching, having their own ministries. John the Baptist is Christ's forerunner. He, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, repent and believe. This is a baptism of repentance. Jesus baptizing ministry. I'm the Lamb of God, be baptized. But then something happens. Then something happens. And you look at verse 12, and this is sort of answering point one of our outline. 
where was Jesus? This is where Jesus was. It says, now when he heard that John had been arrested, what happened? Well, an undisclosed period of time of baptizing had been happening. We don't know how long that was, but suddenly disaster strikes and John the Baptist is incarcerated. He's taken to a prison by Herod Antipas. He's taken to the castle of Macarus. Herod Antipas, on the eastern shore of the Dead Sea, so over on the other side of the Dead Sea, puts John the Baptist in jail. Now, this is going to dictate what Jesus does. Jesus, in one sense, is saying the herald is incarcerated. His mission is closing and my mission is accelerating. Remember, John said, I must decrease, he must increase. John's whole ministry was to lift Jesus up, lift Jesus up. And so John goes to jail and Jesus goes up to Galilee. It's sort of just divine providence where Jesus is saying, okay, this is where I need to go now. Was Jesus moving out of the danger zone? Not at all. Herod Antipas was one of the Tetrarch um, Herods under his father, Herod the Great, who had, who had died and then in his will had designed it for the four sons to take four quadrants of the region of, of, of God's Israel. And so you have these Herods. And Herods, by the way, are not full-blooded Jews. These are, um, these are um, those who are kind of half-blooded Jews. They're Edominians, and that means they come from the line of Esau. And so that in essence, practically means the Jews didn't trust them. They didn't affirm these Herods. Herods were servants of Rome and sort of these quasi-bridge-building leaders. And they were very passive-aggressive and bloodthirsty, just like their father, Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was a kind of meek, passive, but then aggressive uh, leader and allowed his wife to dupe Um, him and his daughter into having John the Baptist's head delivered on a platter. Remember Herod Antipas, he's this ruthless but passive leader. He kind of affirms John the Baptist, likes his preaching, but then allows his daughter Salome to trick him and serve um, John the Baptist's head on a platter at a dinner party. And we're going to learn about that in John 14, 6 through 11. It says actually that Herod himself was made sick or distressed by what had happened. It's all passive stuff. He, uh, he married his, um, his brother's wife out from under his brother. And her name was Herodias. And he married her. He's sinful. And ultimately, John the Baptist was taken to jail because he went against this despot. He took a stand against immorality and just preached boldly. And boldly in a way that Herod enjoyed his boldness but was offended by his message. So he put him in jail and then ultimately had allowed for him to be duped and killed. Second Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? will be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised or even alarmed by persecution. But this was a turning point for Jesus. Jesus decides to become an itinerant preacher along the Sea of Galilee, which was in the domain and ruling region of this Herod Antipas. 
So Jesus was going into the danger zone, but not leading by the chin. He went to the Sea of Galilee to begin to build an army of disciples, to build apostles and build leaders by calling them to be fishers of men. And itinerant preaching was dangerous, but a little bit under the radar as to where he was. It says he withdrew, he withdrew into Galilee. That's where he went. And it was part of the design of God. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum. That phrase right there in verse 13 is interesting to me. I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia on the East Coast and, you know, the Norfolk, Chesapeake, Virginia Beach area. It's a military town. It's, it's got a lot of fishing there as well. It's a coastal town and it's very transient. Virginia Beach itself is about 400,000 people. So it's a similar dynamic to Anchorage if you just were to take it and isolate it out and put it in the middle of a large land expanse in the north. It would be Anchorage in a lot of ways. And um, so a lot of things are familiar um, to me in that sense. And I have some identity with growing up there, but really my identity is here. My identity is where God placed me in my mission, in my ministry, in what I'm supposed to do and who I'm supposed to be friends with and how I'm supposed to minister, right? That's what this, these, this, these phrases are establishing. Jesus was from Galilee, ministering in Galilee now. That's his ministry focus and it's his identity. What is Jesus? Jesus is a preacher. He's a preacher in Galilee. This is what he is all about. Galilee is kind of an interesting place. It had a lot of new ideas. A lot of things were happening. It was, uh, as I mentioned, a commercial town. Compared to Judea in the south on your Bible map, Judea would be kind of a place in and of itself. Um, People have quoted um, about the difference between Judea and Galilee as Judea was a place going where you would go nowhere and Galilee was a place where you could go anywhere because it was next to the Damascus Road, Damascus Road that would travel along the Mediterranean down into North Africa and down into Africa. It was a place that people accessed um, as a crossroads to the world, which is kind of similar again to here. It's very Gentile. Now, why was it Gentile? I just think that's important for you to understand. Eight centuries before Christ, you have uh, Isaiah writing this text. And it's, it's called the Galilee of the Gentiles. And that's because of what happened to that particular area. That area is part of the promised land proper. And Joshua was the leader who led the nation of Israel under you know, the leadership that mantle that had been given to him by Moses through the, the Jordan as, as the water stood up on a heat, heap into the promised land. And the, there were several tribes that were des- designating areas to, um, to, to live. And the tribe of Asher was assigned to live there in the land of Canaan. And then um, sub-tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, are the ones mentioned here in this prophecy. The reason they're mentioned is because historically those people did not expel, they didn't separate from the world well. Let's say that. Let's just put it in modern vernacular. They, they were syncretized. They had one foot in the world and one foot in God's plan. Does that sound familiar? That's always a recipe for disaster. 
They intermarried with the pagan Canaanites there. They didn't expel, they didn't send away the Canaanites fully. And so that spread for some disaster. And ultimately, eight centuries before Christ, 8 BC, you have, um, you have this thing that happens. You have Syrian captivity where people come down and they, they take away the Israelites. And then you have Assyrian captivity where they're exiled away from their land. Well, when they left, Gentiles took their place and came in, you see. And so that's where you have Gentile population that's there. And then when the Israelites came back, it was mixed up. It was a melting pot. So why did Jesus go there? Why didn't he go to the religious center? Why didn't he go to the synagogues right away? Why didn't he associate with the Jews or with Bethlehem? Well, Isaiah tells us why. And if you'll look at this, this is point two. Why was Jesus here? Why was Jesus here? Where was he and why was he there? If you'll look at verse 14, it says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Well, it was precisely fulfilled. And amazingly, Jesus ended up exactly where Isaiah said he would be. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea. This is along the Sea of Galilee. This is just being fulfilled precisely beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. But look at the spiritual condition of this place. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness. This is this melting pot. They don't have God's word up there. This is syncretized. This is a, this is like our United States of America now. This is where, you know, the Bible is getting sublimated. It's, it's getting, um, put, you know, on the shelf. It's passe in becoming more and more passe in our culture. Sadly, they're in darkness, but the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus showed up. And for those dwelling in the region, the shadow and shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. What's dawned here? Well, Emmanuel has shown up. God with us is here. Two chapters before this um, passage is quoted in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 7, Jesus is called Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, it's, this is the quotation there. But if you go down a few verses to verses 6 and 7, it says for, I don't know if you've heard these verses before, right after this quotation in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. This is Jesus. This is Emmanuel who has shown up. He's here, unexpected, in an unexpected place, a place without religious witness, and he's light in the midst of darkness. God calls himself light. Jesus said of himself, I am what? The light of the world. He's the light. I think in the darkest places, Jesus shines brightest. You know, a lot of times when we're used to Jesus, we, we miss Jesus in his full resplendent glory for who he is. When you're really rested out of the chains of darkness, whether depression or guilt or bondage or sin patterns or a, a, a death trajectory, when you are lifted out of that, Jesus is bright to you. That's where 
God the Father and the Holy Spirit sent Jesus. That's where Jesus chose to go. Galilee. I'm going to go there. That's where I'm going to set up ministry and mission and be light in a dark place. This was not the Bible Belt. This was a place that needed to hear Jesus. Job 10.21 speaks of a land of darkness, a deep shadow. Psalm 107.10, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. Salvation had come. Simeon, the great um, priest that was waiting for the arrival of Jesus, you remember when Mary and Joseph presented Jesus, he had his nunc dominius experience where he said, now I can die. I, it's, it's happened. I'm done. I've, I've seen the Lord. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Eight centuries, precisely fulfilled, but fulfilled This fulfillment wasn't just a geographical thing to go, okay, the geography matches, so it's Messiah, cool, right? It's a good math equation, got it. No, there's heart behind this. Jesus goes to the mongrel, non-traditional, mixed multitude. He goes to the Samaritans. He goes to the Galileans. That's what Jesus is doing. We have a Savior who loves the world, He loves, the word Gentiles here is ethnon. Jesus loves the ethnicities. He loves the people groups. He loves the races. Listen, race is a major topic in our world today. It's in our country's conversation. People are trying to fix hatred between races with movements and with um, gestures and with educating and with all kinds of things. And this is inner intertwined within our political stage and structure that is before us all the time. Let me tell you what, Jesus loves the races. He loves all people groups. And he's come as savior for all of us, every one of us. It's amazing to think about. If I understand my Bible right, the races began and ethnicity began in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. People raising themselves up in pride and saying, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to build this tower and ascend. It's like a satanic philosophy and ideology to say, I'm taking over. I'm at center stage. It's secular humanism and God basically in an act of grace divides the people from themselves. They were uniting in a way that was satanic, trying to overthrow God. And God dethrones them and diversifies them and sends them into different regions of the world where they have different languages. So the races are born. And so through that, there's redemption though. There's redemption because in Acts chapter two, remember when God created the gift of tongues. Well, this is the gift of known languages where people could speak different languages and understand each other. And the spirit of God was dynamically present and the church was born. And it was an expression of God's gospel, not only for the Jews at Pentecost, but for the nations who had come at Pentecost providentially to experience the understanding of the gospel in their own language. 
Amazing, right? God is for us to know him. It's not isolated just in the Israelites. It's not just isolated in the Jews. God has always gone to the Jew first, but he also goes to the Greek. He also goes to the Gentiles, and we participate in that. That's why the, the idea of understanding tongues in the Bible it's, it's a blessing to, to know that the gospel is communicated in known languages in the early church. And, and that was a beautiful expression of God reaching out to the nations. This is why he's in Galilee. This is why he starts ministry there. There's always been the hint of God reaching the world, even through the nation of Israel. Isaiah 42, 6 God's covenant people are a light for the nation. Isaiah 49, 6, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Isaiah 52, 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth to see the salvation of God. I said all that to bring us to a third point. Not only were we finding out where Jesus was and starting his ministry and We're understanding why he was there. But thirdly, we need to know what this means for us. What does this mean? And we really see this in verse 17, if you'll look there. It says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Jesus doing to reach the Galilee of the Gentiles? What cuts through culture? Preaching, preaching. It's preach. The word is uh, for preach is keruks. It means to proclaim. It means to tell forth. It means to declare. It means to have the Holy Spirit illuminate your mind and convince you that something is true and you say it. And you let the chips fall where they may. You hope the chips fall well in the heart and that the Holy Spirit takes what you say and imprints it in the heart where a person says, that is true. How do you know the Bible is true? Because the Holy Spirit tells you it's true and truth. Jesus calls himself, he was called the word for a reason. He came as the word. He didn't come to just dialogue and debate. He didn't come just to um, sort of get in battles of logic being a logician or something like that. No, he didn't come to convince. He didn't come to reason. He came to preach. He's a preacher. He's a preacher. He healed. He raised the dead, cast out demons. But He's always preaching and he's bringing kingdom. It's as if heaven came down. Heaven is no more sin, no more sickness, no more death, no more dying, no more demons. That's heaven on earth. And Jesus is bringing this kingdom and he's bringing a message. He's saying, repent, repent, metanoia, change the way you think because the kingdom is right in your face. The kingdom is right here. Don't miss it. It's how you should feel when the word of God is hitting you, where You're assaulted, you're confronted with the kingdom and you have to choose. You're brought to a crossroads by a messenger who is saying, repent, change your thinking. It was John the Baptist's message and now it's Jesus' message, repent. Repentance is to change your thinking. It's as if you were thinking one way, you're thinking worldly, you're thinking satanic, you're thinking wrongly and then you're brought to submission under the truth and you say, By the Holy Spirit's power, I'm going to think differently. 
and I was walking this direction and now I'm going to do a 180. And because I'm thinking differently, I'm going to act differently. If you think like the world, you will act like the world. If you let the world in your mind enough, you will start to see the world come out of your life every time. If you think like Christ, you think like the truth, you think along the lines of the Holy Spirit and his path that he takes you with the word of God, you'll begin to see the fruit of the spirit in your life. I think a lot of times we overcomplicate it. We overcomplicate. Why am I acting the way that I'm acting? Why am I trending the way that I'm trending? Why am I doing things that are self-destructive? Why am I doing things that are harming my relationships and my friendships? Why am I downcast? Oh, my soul. I need to think differently. I need to hear the word of God. I need to read and let it confront me. Let it assault my sin. Let it clarify for me what's wrong and what needs to be right. And then change your thinking. And then that will change your action by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's preaching. I was in preaching class. I have a couple days a week, Tuesday and Thursday evening, where I get to preach and teach preachers for an hour and a half. And it's uh, six men. And it's one of my favorite things that I get to do once I'm doing it. And I just love it because I love preaching. I love everything about it. And I love to do it. And someone said, what is preaching? And, you know, just push the button and I go. That's, that's what I believe. It's, it's what Paul said as a defining statement in his life, 2 Corinthians 4, I believed, therefore I preached. I believe, therefore I preach. And we believe things and then we speak things without apology from truth. That's what we need in our life. That's what we need in our culture. How do you reach the nations? How do you clarify the issue of racism in our culture? You preach the gospel. He preached. He preached. And things happen. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That phrase at the beginning of the verse from that time is repeated three times in the gospel of Matthew. And they mark turning points of three different sections in the Gospel of Matthew, it's Matthew 16, 21 is the second turning point, and 26 to 16, or 26, 16 is the third turning point going to the cross. Well, these are, these are markers for what Jesus was all about. What was Jesus all about? He was about preaching repentance for the kingdom. His main mission was this ministry of the word. It's why we have a radio ministry. I I don't want to be on the radio for me. I don't like myself that much. Um, I, you know, I, I only believe successful radio preaching is when the word is made clear, right? The word is what does the work, not personality, especially not my personality. Um, I'm kind of a wallflower, um, really, around the house, especially. Judy's the life of the party, not me. But, um, but preaching is powerful, and it's because the word is powerful and the word does the work. Um, the word is uh, what changes lives and people hear it around the city. They hear it around the valley and down in Kenai, I think. I don't know. Talkeetna. They hear it in some of the villages. It's, it's reproduced through Voice for Christ radio and in a mission post sort of way. And it, it's beautiful because I don't, I don't even have a car radio. I live across the street from here. So, um, you know, I'm not in the radio um, not listening to the radio much, but I just know that the Bible is going out. That's what matters. 
and the word goes out and it changed, changes lives. And we don't even know what's happening. It, the word of God takes on a life of its own in the hearts of people in, in, in an invisible dimension, right? In a heart dimension where things are happening all the time. So when you sow the seed of the word of God, when you give the word to a child or a student or a friend or a spouse, when you talk about the Bible, things happen. Things are different. That is a unique conversation in and of itself. Repentance, so powerful. Well, I want to talk about something because we're in the Galilee of the Gentiles concept, the idea of a multicultural environment. I want to talk about a, a problem that people are trying to solve in our society, and that is the problem of racism. The problem of racism. And the reason I bring it up is just the text has sort of led us into this discussion. And I think the simplicity of verse 17 is the solution to racism. How do you solve racism? What is racism? Well, I just created my own simplified definition. Racism is to hate, oppress, marginalize, or disrespect someone because of that someone's ethnicity. It's to hate. Let me flip that on its head. When you don't love someone, not just when you hate someone, but when you don't love someone, that is a form of racism. If you're not loving them because of their race, to hate or not love, to transgress the law, the sin of commission, to cross the line and say, I hate you is sin. And also to not measure up to the law, which says, love thy neighbor as yourself is sin. The sin of commission, sin of omission. To hate or not love. Racism. How is that sin or any sin solved? Repentance. Calling a sin a sin. Repentance. And Jesus transforming your heart so that it turns from hating into loving. That's repentance. This is solving the same problem that everyone has, which is the problem with sin. We all have a problem with sin. Sin is solved by repenting based on hearing the truth and then believing in Christ. It's the gospel transformation that takes place. Preaching repentance gets people to deal with this sin problem. It gets people to grace. Listen to Titus 3. This is one of my, I say favorite, it's a, it's a very alarming and sobering verse, but it's so clear in terms of what I once was before I was saved. This is our testimony before you're saved. Verse three, Titus three, three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. An unconverted person hates, hates people. This is sin that is only solved by grace. And grace comes from hearing the word of God and having a transformed heart by the gospel. What does this look like? Well, we have the same solution. We have the same problem and the same solution. Our solution is Ephesians 2. Listen, the beginning of Ephesians 2 is you're dead in your trespasses and 
trespasses and sins. And then Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you're saved by grace alone, not by works. Now listen to verse 13 through 17. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were, who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. If you were far off, you're brought near for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has, watch this, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's racism. That's the sin of hating between Jew and Gentile. A wall is there and it's brought down by what? The gospel. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself Here's the key phrase, one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, here it is, killing the hostility, killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus was preaching through Paul. That's what that means. When Paul went to Ephesus as a missionary, he was preaching and Christ through him was preaching and it broke down barriers between Jew and Gentiles. Gentiles were the people who were welcomed in after the fact into the church. Do you remember the whole issue of the Jerusalem council was the fact that in Galatia, you had these churches that had been born in the second missionary journey under Paul and Silas, and they were winning these people to Christ, and they were bringing these, these reports back to the Jerusalem council, and the Jews were saying, we don't know what to do with them because they're not keeping the law. They're not keeping the law. They're eating things they ought not to eat. How are we going to get, get along? And there, was, there were contracts made and, and discussions had where, where the church was deferring to each other so that Paul and Silas could go back around on a third missionary journey and give a report to the churches that we are one, that we are one, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken. Do you remember Galatians 3? This is the whole crux of the issue. The application of the gospel is this. Galatians 3, 27 and 29, or through 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, therefore there is neither. I mean, this is so countercultural then, and it's countercultural today now. There is neither Jew nor Greek. In other words, there is no race issue in Christ there is neither slave nor free. There is, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. You're one. It's that phrase, again, in Ephesians chapter 2 that I read before. You are one new man. What does that mean? How does that happen? Well, Jew and Gentile couldn't have been more separated before they were brought together in the church. The whole Jewish faith was about separation. It was about ethnic purity, about being cleansed from false teaching and false worship and syncretism was all wrong. There was no way to do it without Jesus. You had to isolate, you had to separate and be separate and be holy. That's the whole theology of holiness. Everything goes wrong when that's intermixed 
But when Christ came, he built a bridge and he said, listen, all come to me, all come to me. And I'm going to make you a new man. That's the Jew and the Gentile becoming one new man. These polarized groups were brought together. How does this happen? Making Gentiles part of Israel? No. Is it supposed to be a separate but equal coexistence? No. Listen to Kent Hughes. Our Kent Hughes nails it. He says, quote, Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half breed. He made an entirely new man. Is that how you see each other? We're all new in Christ. The ground is level at the cross. We're one. We're one. Male, female, we're one. Different races, we're one. Different backgrounds, we're all one in Christ. That's what the gospel gives us. Is blood thicker than water? Well, H.B. Charles, who's an African-American pastor, I respect, um, from Jacksonville, Florida. He's a great man, great preacher. He said, in Christ, we are closer to one another than identical twins. If that person does not trust Jesus as Savior and Lord, so you have identical twins, you can, you can think the same way on a physiological, intellectual sense. But if you don't both have Christ, then you're not as close as two people who both have Christ. We have Christ. Remember what was happening in the early church? Church was exploding. Things were taking off. Everybody was having all things in common together. People were believing. But then suddenly there was an early breakdown at church. Acts chapter 6 speaks of the Jews and the Hellenized Jews. It's like a racial division. You had Jews who would speak Hebrew and they were from, you know, the traditions of the Jews and raised ethnically in that way. And then you have Hellenized Jews who spoke Greek and were part of Greco-Roman culture, but they were ethnically Jews. And so when these two came together in the church, there was a distinction made because suddenly the complaint from the Hellenized Jews was that their widows were being neglected. You're keeping the cash to yourselves and you're not distributing well and taking care of the most vulnerable people in our church, people in need who can't take care of themselves, who perhaps have lost their husband or whatever. What are you doing? And so that happened in the early church and it was a, a clear threat of division in the church. Hellenist arose against the Hebrews, it says, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. It says, and the 12 summoned the full number of the, of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, watch this. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now look at verse five. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they, and here's the key thing, they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Why are these names listed? What is significant about this moment? What does it mean that they took seven men and put them in front of the church and the apostles laid hands on them? These names signify a lot of things, but they signify that these were Hellenized Jews. So, 
Who did they give the money to? Who did they give the power to for distribution? There was a great trust and a great symbol of love and unity and oneness. There was no turf war going on where hands were laid on these men. It's a beautiful picture of the oneness that we have in Christ. There was trust there through this dramatic act. And what happened in verse 7? Well, it says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests of the priests became obedient to the faith. Priests who would have been locked up in their own self-pride and knowledge, they were being melted by observing this kind of reconciliation, this kind of oneness in the body of Christ. This is what we have and we should cherish. Being one new man. Personal testimony, I mentioned where I grew up. I grew up in Virginia, in um, the Virginia Beach, Chesapeake area. I, as a boy, was in Chesapeake. That's where I was raised in sort of a lower middle class uh, neighborhood. Um, Enjoyed it a lot and went to schools that were intermixed racially quite a bit. And I was raised in the 70s as a little boy. And so that had some of the residual effects of racism and the desegregation of the 50s and 60s was still sort of in the background. And there was bullying, there was racism and hatred on both sides and all around. And I was witness to that. Um, By one story I remember um, happened when we had a neighbor who Um, I had a best friend who lived across the street. He moved away, and the neighbor family that moved in was a black family. And my mother reached out and invited her to one of our neighborhood, her neighborhood club, which was like a women's cultural arts club, ironically. She was invited to that and then uh, was, after visiting, uninvited. Or at least there was pressure for someone to uninvite her because she was black. And what I remember as a little boy... Uh, is watching my mom cry to my best friend's mom. And they were both part of that group because there were church members in that group from our church who were siding against this woman. And so my mom and my best friend's mom at the time left the group. And they said they took a stand. We can't participate in this. This is wrong. But it's because of Christ. It's because of Christ. It's because when you see people as your equal, as your brother, as your sister, where sin is dealt with in terms of not loving someone or hating someone, when you are repentant and you're thinking spiritually, then we are one. And you know that and you have confidence in that. We rest in that. We have that opportunity as a church because guess what? We have the truth, right? I mean, in a world gone crazy with all these just wrong messages, we understand what the real issue really is. This cannot be solved strictly through politics. We should do our best to be conservative, to be biblical as much as possible in that arena. But underneath it all, 
We are one when we are in Christ together and we love the nations and we love people and we want people to all know the same Jesus so we can fulfill that vision in Revelation 4 and 5 where every tribe, tongue, people, and nation are gathered around the throne. It's what we sang earlier. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Our Redeemer's praise. We know the truth. Sin separates, unrepented of sin, destroys, creates division. But the root is sin. We call it out. We repent of it. We come together because we know the son. We know this Jesus. And we want to walk with him through the sandy shores of Galilee, even um, in our upcoming message in Matthew 4, where he calls those disciples and bands together with brothers to be fishers of men.